The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 15. We're going to overview Genesis 15 to 17 today as we look at the Lord God's covenant with Abraham. Let me just mention today, I encourage you, if you come here week in and week out, even if you're listening online, uh, get a copy of your own Bible, uh, one that's yours. You're always welcome. That's not, you're glad for you to use ours. You, you can even have the one if you took it out of the bottom of the chair. Get a copy of, of your Bible, one that you take notes in, you circle things, you pay attention to things, helping you refer and understand. Because I don't know if you're like me, I leak. Uh, my brain, I put stuff in there and it leaks out and I forget the things I know. And one of the things that helps me is the notes and the things I've written in my Bible to help me spur me on and remember the connection points so that I'm grasping what's said as, as God clearly makes his word known to me. And the other thing is I would encourage you, if this helps you, some people are not helped, today would be a good day to take notes. I'd encourage you to do that, but today would be a good day. Take notes so you follow along, you grasp these things because hear me on this. This is not an overstatement. To understand the New Testament, you've got to understand Genesis 15 to 17. You've got to grasp what God's doing here with Abraham if you're going to understand what God is doing throughout the New Testament. This is crucial, foundational in our faith. This is not just a story about a man. This is not a moral story. This is a story about God's unfolding faithfulness toward us. So Genesis 15, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 15 as our starting point today. So I invite you to stand as I read the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God. What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, this, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, I pray now that as you reveal yourself through your word to us, that we would be believing. That we would believe what you say. That we would trust you. Thank you that you do not leave us in the dark. Thank you that you speak and you speak clearly to us. I offer this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we've got the word covenant here. I dare say many of us would be challenged to define what that means. So let me just give you some clear, simple explanations. A covenant is an arrangement between two parties involving mutual obligations. An arrangement between two parties involving mutual obligations. Now, <clears throat> the best example of covenant for us, even though this is broken down big time in our culture, 
is what a man and a woman do in marriage vows standing before people. To have and to hold, to love and to cherish, richer or poor, sickness and in health, till death do us part. That's a covenant. Both making mutual obligations to one another. A covenant relationship is not a mutual acquaintance. It's a binding commitment to responsibility and to action. Binding. A binding commitment to responsibility and to action. Now, when we look at the biblical covenants, the covenants that God establishes, there are two very important things that we need to see and understand about God's covenants. God's covenants are not between equals. So unlike a husband and wife, both made in the image of God, equal in the sight of God, God's covenants with Abraham is not between an equal. He's the Lord God Almighty. Second, biblical covenants are always ratified in blood. You're going to see this as we move through this message today. But anytime you notice in Scripture, you'll see the ratification of the covenant in blood. Now, let's go back to Genesis chapter 12 and pick up where we started with Abraham two weeks ago. Abraham, a pagan man living in a pagan country among a pagan family. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and he who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse four, so Abraham went. Now, 11 years have passed from that moment in time to where you pick up in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, the Lord God again speaks to Abram and clarifies and clearly states the covenant. As a result, verse six of chapter 15 says, Abraham believes. So the central theological idea here concerns Abraham's faith in the Lord. Faith that is not a leap in the dark. It is faith trusting in the good word of God, that he is believing what God has said. So let's break first chapter 15 apart and look at the Lord God's covenant with Abraham. So the Lord speaks after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your reward shall be great. So God here at first is promising protection. I am your shield and provision your reward shall be very great. He's basically restating what he's already said to Abram. Verse two. But Abram said, in response to this promise of protection and provision, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So according to Eastern culture, if there was no offspring and it came to the point that uh, an inheritance would be received, the, the, the ranking member of the household that's not a member of the blood family would receive the inheritance. And he's saying Eleazar of Damascus, a foreigner, is 
is the ranking member. He says, I continue childless. Then he speaks directly to the Lord and says, you have given me no offspring. So in this, you hear a complaint from Abraham. This is a quote. Abraham complains out of his faith, not his unbelief. It takes spiritual energy of faith to complain in contrast to despairing silence. So so Abraham's saying, you you promised me offspring. I, I, I still remain. So in this, you hear a request as he offers this up to the Lord. Verse four, and behold, it's always an important phrase in the Bible. This means something important is happening. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. So you hear now the Lord's unconditional promise to Abraham. You will father a son. As a result from you will come a son. Secondly, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars, more than you can possibly count. This is what God has said to him already in Genesis 12, but he says it clearer, more succinctly here. And as a result, it says, Abraham believes. He believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. So God's covenant is always received by faith. Abraham believed God's word. God revealed truth to him and he accepted it. We cannot say that we believe God if we do not believe his revealed word. And we cannot say we believe God if we do not believe his revealed word about the seed or the offspring who is Christ. So Abraham believed in the Lord, suggesting a personal commitment that Abraham would kept on believing. He continued to trust the Lord. Now, keep your place there in Genesis 15, and I want you to turn to Romans chapter 4 with me. Now, you have to have some capacity of what's taking place in Genesis chapter 15 then to read Romans and understand what he's saying here. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So everybody in here had a job. Your boss didn't call you in on Friday and say, here's a little gift for hanging around here this week. You were given a just paycheck, what you earned. So he says here, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. Verse five, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul here is making it perfectly clear that righteousness is not a reward for Abraham's work of faith. God reckons or credits this righteousness to him as a gift in response to Abraham's trust in God's promise. 
Abraham's faith is not to be seen as a work which God is pleased to treat as a righteous act, but as reliance on God's promise concerning the seed or Christ. It is the divine promise which is the important item. Faith in the promised Savior is not a substitute for righteousness, but the means God uses to declare sinners righteous. So God's not looking at you and saying, because you believe, that's righteous. We believe in what he has said, what he has accomplished, what he has done. We trust in Christ alone. And as a result, sinners are declared righteous through the righteousness of Christ. Now, folks, I find that people are very confused about this. So I'll ask people when I'm interviewing, talking to them about their faith and, and trust in the Lord. Is there anything you did to earn your salvation? No, but, I, but often I get that. No. Okay, well, what do you mean? Well, I, I believed. Was, so is that a work? The fact that you believed, is that a work? What's the answer? You're afraid to answer me. See how confused we are? No. Faith is not a work. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. You're not doing anything. You are trusting in what God has said and what God has done. Abraham believed. He didn't do anything. He believed and it was credited to him as righteous. Now, God ratifies this covenant with blood. I'm back in Genesis 15. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each other against each other. So cuts them in half and they're laid opposite of each other. Okay be a pathway between them. That'll be important here in a moment. As the day pressed on, verse 11 says, when the birds of prey came down, the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Then the sun goes down and a deep sleep fell on Abram. Now, who else did a deep sleep fall on in Genesis? Adam. So God's about to do something significant here. A deep and dreadful sleep, a deep sleep fell on, behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years and I will bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God's describing what takes place as God's people are exiled into Egypt for 400 years and then God releases them, takes them out and with great possessions. Now verse 17 says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now let me first explain to you that in the ratification of a covenant, Often in, in the east, there would have been a sacrifice made and the people entering into this binding agreement, both of them would walk between 
these two sides of pieces. Now notice this. Abraham does not walk between the pieces. Then you say, well, what's the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch? Now think about it. God's just introduced Egypt. He's going to take his people out of Egypt. How does God lead them out of Egypt? During the day, he is a pillar of cloud and at night he's a pillar of fire. So the question is not what is verse 17? The question is who is verse 17? And the answer is it's the Lord God. He is the one passing between these pieces and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham say to your offspring I will give this land. So God is making this promise as it says in Hebrews chapter 6, he is swearing by himself. He's the only party to pass between this means. He takes it upon himself to ensure that these promises are fulfilled. Now, I don't have time to preach this yet. We're going to get there. But God totally takes it on himself to the point Christ takes it all. He's the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. But I'm getting way ahead. Now, from Genesis chapter 15, we have chapter 16. Now, that's, that, that could be a whole other sermon here. This is the account of Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. I'll just ask you a question. You ever been tempted to help God? You know why we do it? Because we've heard all our life this statement. Well, you know, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. Uh, no, it doesn't. In fact, that's anti-Christian. God helps those who cannot help themselves. That's who God helps. Now, Abraham's pretty helpless. He's 86 years old, never had a kid. All right? He's in a helpless state. Now, Sarah decides, hey, we can help this situation out. This, this would have been in the code of Hammurabi, which is, was from the land where Abraham and Sarah came from. Number 146 would have said that if the woman was barren, then one of her maidservants could serve in her place. So she gives Abraham Hagar, his Egyptian, her Egyptian servant. And this is very interesting. Just like Adam, Abraham says nothing and did what the, he followed the voice of his wife, just like Adam did. He goes in with Hagar, she conceives. Then, then, this love how this story plays out here. Sarah gets mad at Abraham because of what he did. It's her idea. She gets mad and jealous, blames him, becomes a threat to Hagar. Hagar flees for her life. The angel of the Lord is merciful upon Hagar. Verse 16, I mean, verse 11, chapter 16, behold, this is the angel of the Lord speaking to her. You're pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man and his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over and against all of his kinsmen. So this is going to be a wild man that is going to come as, as a result. Now, two, two very practical things here. That, that chapter 16 are uh, three things. One, we don't help God. When God promises he'll do something, he'll do it. He doesn't need us to come up with another plan. Number two, sexual sin has long-term effect. 
God's plan was revealed in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. A man and a woman would come together in a union and God would bless that union. That's God's plan. The third thing I want you to see is that the Arabs of today claim their lineage from Ishmael. In other words, folks, this conflict still going on. These people who both claim to be descendants of Abraham are still at odds with each other in the world today. Now, chapter 17 says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Now we've ratcheted ahead 13 more years. We're 24 years removed from, the, from Genesis chapter 12 when God first appears to Abram and makes promises to him. And what we're going to see here in chapter 17 are the responsibilities of the Lord God's covenant with Abraham. A covenant is key. I'm not going to have time to slowly work through chapter 17. But in chapter 17, the word covenant is used 13 times. The first thing God does is clarify the covenant. He appears to Abraham and says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Now this is a key succinct statement that we gotta, we gotta grasp. I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. I am the God who can and will do what I said I will do. Now because I am sovereign, I am the God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So in this text, we have the sovereignty of God, the almighty God who's gonna do what he said he's gonna do, and we have human responsibility. Walk before me and be blameless. He's calling Abraham to obedience and to holiness. Now, why would he be doing this? Chapter 16. The whole situation with Hagar was not an obedient, blameless moment for Abraham. Don't miss this. God is faithful to his covenant, not to how Abraham keeps it. It's hard for us to grasp. God made an everlasting covenant. He promised he was going to do something to Abraham. Abraham, you think it looks like he blew it here in chapter 16, but this is God's covenant and he is God Almighty and he's going to keep it. However, however, he has an expectation for Abraham. He clearly states it. You be blameless and walk before me. The word blameless does not mean sinless. It means unqualified surrender. That Abraham is to be totally and wholly devoted to God. That he is to walk in reference to every day of his life in the presence of God. He is to submit to God's will. Verse 2. I will make a covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. So the first thing about the covenant that God clarifies is what he said in Genesis 12 too, that I will make you a great nation. He says here, he states it this way, I will multiply you greatly. This is God's promise. Abraham fell on his face. This is a signaling worship, but, 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 but there also must be some repentance here as you come out of chapter 16. Be blameless. Walk before me. God said, behold, my covenant is with you. So whose covenant is this? It's crucial. It's 
is God's covenant. My covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So the second clarification you have is that Abraham is going to be a father of a multitude of nations. So much so that he changes his name from Abram, which means father exalted, to Abraham, a word play meaning the father of a multitude of nations. He further clarifies it in verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. So from you, Abraham, many descendants. I will make you into nations. So not just the nation of Israel is coming from Abraham. Nations, plural. And we see the fulfillment of that in Revelation. And kings will come from you. So the lineage of of, of kings are going to come in the nation of Israel. And ultimately the king of kings is going to come from Abraham's lineage. So he's going to multiply him greatly. He's going to make him the father of a multitude of nations. Now we see number three. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. This covenant will never, ever cease. Now, folks, I'm going to take you to Hebrews in a minute. And because of the language of Hebrews, we get mixed up in our heads about what actually happens with God's covenant with Abraham. Hear me. God's covenant with Abraham never ceases. It is an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and your offspring after you. And here's the fourth thing. I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And finally, the summary I will be their God. This is God's promise. This covenant is permanent. Now, despite the fact that he emphasizes Abraham's responsibilities, God is saying here, I will see to it that this agreement will not fail. Now, he calls Abraham to take on a sign of the covenant. Now, parents, I'm going to preach straight through this. I'm going to be careful how I say it, but I just want to say to you, answer your children's questions. Don't, don't be puritanical and skirt around it. Answer their questions. Be straight with them, okay? Help them grasp what's happening here. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your, their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Underline that phrase. It shall be a sign. It's crucial that you get that. So the sign of the covenant is circumcision. I said to you, all biblical covenants are ratified in what? Blood. And God is going to do this in a very personal way with Abraham. So this sign is tied to the promised seed. This is a sexual sign. God could chose to put a permanent sign somewhere else on Abraham. He chose this very intentionally. He promised a seed. By the way, if you look at Malachi 2, 10 to 
17, it talks about the purity of marriage and how this ties into the purity of marriage that God expects of his followers, of his people. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, talks about the fact that ultimately what we need is a circumcision of the heart. But here's what I want you to understand. Circumcision does not establish the covenant. God establishes the covenant. Circumcision is a sign of membership into the covenant family. Now, it's a significant sign. Circumcision is a permanent sign in the flesh of God's covenant, just as God's covenant is permanent. Circumcision is irreversible, just as God's covenant is irreversible. Now, God continues in chapter 17 speaking to Abraham, and I'm going to pick up in verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. The word Sarah means princess. Even her new name still is a derivation of princess. So from this princess are going to come kings. Now, what does this do to Abraham? He fell on his face. It's a sign of worship and reverence again. And laughed. And said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 90 years old, bear a child? It's a little moment here. When when Emma Owens was 95, he got married again. Okay? This is the third time he'd outlived two wives. He's our founding pastor. And we're standing out about to walk in here to do the wedding. And he looked at me with a little wry grin on his face. And he said, by the way, we're not Abraham and Sarah. (laughs) I will never forget that moment. Uh, 100 years old, 90 years old. He laughs. Now, some people would say Abraham's mocking. Maybe, maybe, maybe so. I I can't be 100% here. But I think when you put it with the fact that he fell on his face and he laughed, it was one of those moments to where you're laughing out of a a joyful response that seems almost unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah, only God could do that. Only God God could, could cause this to happen. Now, God says, how about Ishmael? And God says, no, it's not, it's not going to be Ishmael. You're, you're, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him what? Do anybody know what Isaac means? He laughs. So every time, every time he looked at that kid, God reminded him every time he laughs. <laughs> Who's laughing? God's not mocking it's, it's God's promise fulfilled right there. Now, from this point, Abraham, verses 22 to 27, 
obeys God and takes the sign of circumcision. It's significant. Every man in this room understands the significance of this. This 99-year-old man and his 13-year-old son and every member of this household take the sign of circumcision on this day. It's a sign of the covenant because God's covenant requires obedience. But we wanna make sure we understand this properly, so let's go back to Romans chapter four because the people of Israel got all messed up in their heads about what circumcision meant and, and, and what, it, what it signified. And basically, here's what happened. People started believing that as long as a man was circumcised, he was saved. He was in. Romans chapter four, verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So question, was Abraham saved before or after he was circumcised? Before. The Bible's explicit here. Don't miss that. Before the circumcision. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith of their father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the father of all those who believe and obey the Lord. Belief precedes obedience. It's not the other way around. We don't obey the Lord, so we get faith. We believe the Lord, and it results in obedience. So the Lord God produces righteous people. He came to Abraham of his own accord. It was God's grace. There was nothing in Abraham, nothing that Abraham did that caused God to move toward him. God, by his grace, comes to Abraham and through Abraham produces a righteous man. But he also requires this man to be righteous, to walk before him and to be blameless and to take these moments of obedience like circumcision. Now, this week in growth group, that's what we're going to be continuing to work out. How God, who, who makes us righteous through his saving work and requires and calls us to live righteously in and among this world. Now, let's seek to draw some application. This is a statement, and then I want to form it in a question. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant that produces new creations. And it begs this question, then do I believe that Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant? Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I know if some of you, you need a commercial right now. I'm giving you one mentally so you can track with me here in Hebrews. Because you can make this hard. This is not hard. You just got to connect the dots. So we're going to play dot to dot for a few minutes, okay? Then a picture is going to form. So let's play dot to dot in your head. You with me? But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Okay, now this is crucial. When he's talking about a better covenant here, 
He's referring to the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law. He is not talking about Abraham's covenant. He brings it up, though. He does it subtly. Watch this. Since it is enacted, the new covenant, is enacted on better what? Promises. Now, he's about to talk about one of those promises, but let's go backwards in chapter 6. This is where I preached last week. We're connecting dots. You with me? Chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a what? A promise to who? Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear. So he's referring now, just better promises, to this everlasting covenant that God makes with Abraham. Now, Christ is the fulfillment of what God had promised. He is the mediator of this new covenant. Now, I'm back in chapter 8. It's quoting beginning in verse 8 from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And I could have turned there with you and showed you that the prophet Jeremiah was prophesying to this new covenant. Let me read it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by hand out of the land of Egypt. So that's the Mosaic covenant. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The prophet Ezekiel said it this way in chapter 36, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and carefully to obey my rules. What's Jeremiah and Ezekiel saying? He's saying that in the new covenant through the work of Jesus Christ, he's gonna produce, he's gonna make new creations. They're not gonna be driven by an outward law, no. Because of an inward reality of the work of God and making them a new creation, he's going he's to put the law in their minds and in their hearts, and they're going to be his God. He will be their God, and they shall be his people. And it says, no one's going to have to say, know the Lord, because they're going to know me. His people know God. Why? Because he's been merciful toward their iniquities, and he's remembered their sins no more. How did that happen? Because Christ was the mediator. Because we failed with all these covenants and God promised that he'd keep the covenant, he sent Christ who became the curse for us and he took it all on himself. And he died in our place. And he rose again. Because what God promises, he keeps. Let me just simply say it this way. He didn't need our help. And here's what we come confessing. We come confessing that we are sinners in need of a savior and Christ has been the mediator of this new covenant, the only one who can save. And the moment that we believe and trust in Christ alone, we become a new creation. And that new creation results in a new life. 
just as Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. The moment we believe the righteousness of Christ is applied to our hearts. And just as God then said to Abraham, walk blameless before me. God now calls us to walk before him. Brothers and sisters, let me clear up some Southern muddy waters. More than once, it's already happened this year, a well-meaning parent or grandparent has walked up to me and said, don't you think it's about time Johnny got baptized? Johnny, are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation and looking to him alone to save you? I guess. Or, uh uh-huh. What's really driving mama and grandma here? If Johnny gets baptized, then Johnny's what? Huh? Saved. There we go. God's given you a sign of faith, by the way. We've done just like Israel did with the sign of faith. It's a sign. And we've flipped it and said we can create the covenant by taking the, the sign. In other words, just like Israel said, we can get circumcised and then we're in. We're in. We're in, we're in God's family because we got circumcised. That's why in Romans he says, not everybody who's been circumcised is of the faith. No. There have been thousands of people in the South passed through waters of baptism who were just as lost as they were the moment before they got into the baptistry. Baptism never precedes faith. It is never first. It is never what creates salvation. Baptism is a sign of faith. That when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved. Now, because God calls us to obedience, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What's the next word? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We take the sign. So what does the sign say? Pay attention. See, we want to do what, we, we want to make this out something we do. Baptism is just a bath. All God's doing is give me a bath. He's just washing the sin off of me. Mm-mm. Baptism's not about a bath. Baptism is a symbol of death and life. That the old is gone and behold, the new is come. And baptism of obedience always happens after you have become a new creation. Now, I want you to hear me on this. Some of you say, well, y'all are kind of hard on people. You really are hard. You make people really clearly identify they're a Christian before your baptism. Duh. You think? Because you hear me as my heart starts to race in my chest. Is there going to be preachers like me who are going to stand before a holy God and answer to him because they convinced people of a false gospel? Who convinced people that salvation came in another way other than through Christ alone? 
And yes, your children must be able to articulate a faith in Jesus Christ, not a yes and no series of questions. Yes, your teenager must be able to articulate faith in Jesus Christ. And yes, you as an adult must. We must be able to clearly communicate why we are claiming to know Christ as Lord. Because faith in Christ and in Christ alone saves. So after this last service, I know I'm late. Man comes up to me, starts asking me questions. And he started like, how's the difference between me and Abraham? Abraham, how, how, how do you know? I said, what do you, whoa, whoa. God spoke, Abraham believed. What's the difference with you? You don't need a show. You don't need for me to do something to wow you. You don't need church to be an experience. Here's what you need. You need the word of the Lord. And at the word of God, we believe. Period. Abraham believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't take a shot in the dark. He believed the word of God. And the word of God says Christ came, died for your sins according to the scripture was buried and three days later rose again according to the scripture. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be, you will be. That's God's everlasting covenantal promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, I plead now on behalf of people who came in here even after hearing this, they're still going to think they can save themselves or something they can do. May faith be cast completely on Christ and Christ alone. May we trust in you and you alone to save. Lord, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. I pray you would take your word now and apply it through the power of the Holy Spirit to the hearts and lives of people. Only you can do creating work. So make new creations. We pray. And we plead in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.